0: Pastor A.W. Tozer once wrote, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. When we say the word God, something always comes to mind. Even the most staunch atheists have an image of God. Indeed, for many, it is because of that image that a good majority have come to the conclusion that it would be better if there was no God at all. Sometimes our image of God and what we say is our image of God can be at odds. I grew up knowing the script, God is good, he loved us so much, he sent his son to die, etc. Within the blessing of being raised a Christian, the scriptures that knock so many new believers off their feet can become one-dimensional truths that seem kind of lackluster. This one-dimensional attitude about the scriptures meant that I couldn't see God with new eyes. He'd become way too familiar, so his true nature was hidden. There are a few things in life that we can be apathetic on, but knowing the character of God isn't one of them. We must confront our image of God and deconstruct it, removing prejudice, assumption, external influence, hurt, and apathy. If we're going to be reconstructing our faith, we have to reconstruct it on the foundation of who God is. Not who we want him to be, not who we think he is, but as he has revealed himself to us in his word. I'm your host, Nicole Dominguez, and this is Faith Reconstructed. Though we may not know it, we have all deconstructed our image of God. However, our reconstruction can be a bit sloppy if we aren't seeing the big picture painted in scripture. This is my invitation to you to read scripture without expectation and allow the image of God to reemerge. It is a necessary but daunting starting point.
1: So I was not raised in, in any kind of faith, religion. Um, and came to faith basically through, um, the influence of my mother and my girlfriend at the time, who is now my wife, who both had very strong spiritual interest and, um, they, they essentially conspired together against me on my behalf. (laughs) And they pointed me in the direction of, of Scripture. And uh, I began to encounter some amazing insights that had never occurred to me.
0: This is Ty Gibson, pastor, author, and co-founder to ministries like Arise, Light Bearers, and Storyline Church. And all around a really great guy to have on speed dial whenever spiritual questions arise.
1: Yeah, I was 18 years old, and I converted to theism rather broadly in general, uh, in the first few weeks of my faith, just basically confessing, wow. Okay. We live in a universe that is not just some big, dark, black hole of meaningless, you know, insignificant animalistic urges, and we're all just going to die. And that's the end of it. There's something more to this. There is a God. So my first step was just to confess that there is a God. And, uh, And then having come to that realization, um, going forward from there, it was a matter of wrapping my mind around how it is that God could exist in the kind of world that we find ourselves living in, a world filled with suffering and evil. And so my conversion was grounded in, in theodicy, basically.
0: If you're confused about what theodicy is, don't worry, we'll define it in a second. But in the meantime, let's turn our attention to David Asherick. He is the other half of Arise, Lightbearers, and Storyline Church, and is also an author and voracious Bible student. David's story of conversion is very similar to Ty's, albeit without the conspiracy and with a more punk rock origin.
2: I was raised in a nominally Christian home. My parents were Episcopalian, and uh, but I was really into skateboarding and punk rock music. And the short version is I became um, a straight edge punk rock kid, and uh, which just means I didn't drink, didn't smoke, didn't do drugs like a lot of my peers were doing. And then what followed, well, really came at about the same time as my becoming a straight edge kid is I became a vegan. And those two things really oriented me to just the larger idea of having an ethic by which you live, you know, trying to live in a right way, which of course suggests that there is uh, a less than optimal way of living. And so that uh, that was a real dawning in my mind that life was more than just pursuing what I want, you know, my urges, my desires, my interests that there was a larger world out there and that we could live in ways that would either favorably or unfavorably impact the world.
0: If you notice, both Ty and David coming from non-religious backgrounds were drawn in by the search for the bigger picture. We as humans are always on a hunt to understand, to grow, to get answers to daunting questions that seem tied to something that is beyond our understanding
2: my desire to live a simple life and a moral life led me uh, to a restaurant that happened to be owned by uh, Christian people, Seventh-day Adventists, in fact. And they were vegan, and they were committed Christians. And I had never met that particular combination before. But here I was finding, and I like to say it this way, here I was finding the why that answered all of my what's. I, I wanted to live in a moral way. I wanted to have a life that would have a a larger impact, uh, more than just my own sort of little orb of selfishness. And the why was God, the why was Jesus, the why was this larger uh, narrative, the biblical narrative of God's love and the challenge of God's love, as Ty described theodicy. And I I love to hear Ty say that theodicy played such a significant role in his conversion because it did the same for
0: me. Okay, so some of you may be asking, what in the world is theodicy? According to Merriam-Webster, theodicy is a noun meaning defense of God's goodness and omnipotence in view of the existence of evil. So let's break that down even further. Theodicy basically means that despite the suffering, pain, and corruption of the world, God is still good. He's not the cause of the world's woes acting as some puppet master punishing you or society because we made him mad. Follow this thread with me. If God is good and omnipotent in the face of evil, does that mean he's powerless and apathetic and he can't stop or change the problems of the world? No, that would mean he's not good and not all powerful and all knowing, which the scriptures have proven over and over that he is. So if that's the case, why doesn't God do something? This is a well known question and one that deserves a fleshed out answer. So, we'll be answering it in the next episode in part two of this discussion. But for right now, understanding what theodicy is and how we relate to it is a basic step in understanding how we deconstruct and reconstruct our image of God. So, what is the character of God? To answer this question, we must ask Who is God and why should we trust him?
1: So, the short answer. The short answer, uh, both biblically and experientially for me, according to scripture, and according to the testimony of God's spirit in my soul, God is love,
0: full stop. Let's pause for a second. When we say the word love, we can easily lose the plot, but a part of deconstruction is getting super granular when it comes to the words we use. When Tai said love just then, what did you think of? A lot of people have different experiences with love and what that means. And in the English language, we're at a major disadvantage. You see, the word love has been monopolized and monetized to have a predominantly romantic meaning. If you really pay attention, the word love is thrown around a lot as a blanket word with meanings that can range from I like this a lot to unhealthy obsession. The word love has been used as a misidentification of attraction, lust, manipulation, or just intense like. It's become transitory rather than what it really means. (laughs) My opa would always correct my sister and I, when we would throw around the word love, like, I love ginger beer, or I love the show, he would say, no, you don't love that. You enjoy it, but you don't love it. Love exists in relationship. It isn't isolated. To suggest love is to suggest the possibility of reciprocation, the possibility of choice, the possibility of intentional intimacy. The Greek language has eight words meaning love. There is eros, sexual passion, which is often used as the main representative of mainstream love, philia, meaning deep friendship, ludus, playful love, pragma, long-standing love, philutia, love of self, storge, familial love, mania, obsessive love, and lastly, agape, meaning selfless love. Agape is the word that describes God. God's love isn't fickle or passive, it doesn't change according to whether or not we make him happy. If God is love, meaning that God is agape, it means that he is other-centered, respectful, self-sacrificial, faithful, and holds accountable to himself and others. When the Bible says that God is love, we need to disregard the modern definition that has become our default. Rather than going in with our definition of what love is and seeing if God meets it, what if we let God's character set the definition?
1: We're talking about basically the foundation of reality. When we say God is love, we mean that that God is constantly for all others above and before himself, and that leads, you know, in a circuitous trajectory through history to Calvary. Calvary is the final full-blown manifestation of what love looks like in action when faced with the onslaught of hatred and evil. God in Christ at Calvary chose all the other. All the others above and before himself. Um, one author says, Love and selfishness stood face to face at Calvary, and love gained the victory. So that's, you know, that's the, the whole path from God is love to the fleshing out of and the proof and evidence, the hard evidence of God's love at Calvary.
0: Whether you believe it as fact or fiction, Christ and his sacrifice is the ultimate example of agape. The more you dive into the New Testament, the more we see that every part of the Bible is leading up to this moment of perfect love. What makes it even more powerful is that Christ died and resurrected, knowing that we might not choose to accept this act of love, and did it anyway.
2: In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, when the apostle Paul is describing what we sometimes refer to um, colloquially as the love chapter, when Paul is describing the attributes of love and he spends at least as much time telling us what love isn't as he does telling us what love is. But one of the things that he says about the nature of love itself, agape, he says that love does not seek its own, Mm. which means that love is looking out for the interest, the benefit, the blessing of others before and above oneself. And this is the point that Ty was making about Calvary. The Calvary is the, the living historical, you know, instantiation of what that kind of love looks for. What does it look like when you fulfill Jesus' words that greater love has no man than this, that one would lay down their life for their friends? Well, it looks like Calvary. God is not passive in his disposition toward us. He is taking the initiative. And and Ty mentioned this great point about the nature of reality itself. This is why it's so important that Jesus, the Logos, is the Mm. one that communicates between the creator and the created. And now we can get a glimpse, not of what God is in his essential nature. And think about it this way. Just imagine, you know, transport your mind back. You're sitting at a table in ancient Jerusalem, and there's a party, and you've been invited there. And uh, Jesus of Nazareth is also in attendance. And let's say there's 20, 30, 40 people there. There's a feast. The food is uh, on the table, and there's laughter in the air. And one of Jesus' disciples turns to you, and let's say this is late in Jesus' ministry, so they're beginning to grasp uh, the idea that he is the I am, and one of the disciples leans over to you, and you are of the mind because you've been listening to some of the teachings of Jesus that he's wise and he's insightful and he's an unusual rabbi. And the disciples say to you, "Yeah, that's that's um, that's God. Yeah, that 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 person over there, that six foot one, scruffy beard, brown eyes, um, calloused hands. Well, that is God." Well, what you're learning about God in that scenario, by looking at Jesus, somebody who, again, is six foot, one inches tall, perhaps 185 pounds with brown hair and calloused hands. Well, you've not really learned anything about God in his essential nature. What you're learning is God's disposition, God's character, not what he is, but who he is and we would know so much immediately we would know that he's a good god that he's a communicative god that he's a loving god that he's a a god that extends himself for the benefit and blessing of others that he's a god that enjoys a party that is happy to go sit down and eat some baba ganoush and and pita bread and you know he's a social god and and one last word theologian uh millard erickson basically said this he says if reality is fundamentally physical then the most powerful constituting force, that is to say, the things that keep everything together, he says, is electromagnetism. If, however, reality is fundamentally social, then the most powerful constituting force is love. And the Bible reveals remarkably, incredibly, that God is love in his very nature, in his very essence, that there is a divine family, a divine society, a divine community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, And to paraphrase C.S. Lewis, this revelation about the plurality within the very nature of God, the covenantal reality within the nature of God, the social reality within the nature of God, Lewis said this is either the greatest truth ever revealed or the greatest farce ever invented.
0: God didn't create the universe because he was lonely or looking for something to control. He created us because love cannot be contained within itself. Love is relational in nature, which means that Yahweh is meant to be known on an intimate and personal level. I want you to notice in any of the scriptures that mention how God is love, almost always it's followed by a verse that is calling for us, his creation, to love others. We can't just love on an isolated sense. It is meant to be shared and reciprocated. This is powerful. In deconstructing our image of God, we can easily get caught up asking the wrong questions like, what is God? Our attempts at classifying the physicality of Yahweh will always fall short. Trying to analyze what God is would mean that he could be limited by space, time, and matter, which would make him of the same material that he himself created, meaning that he is not all-powerful. When constructing our image of God, we must make peace with the reality that Yahweh is greater than our understanding. There will always be things about him that we will never know on this side of heaven. And honestly, do we want a God that can be contained with our human understanding? Acknowledging the majesty of God allows us to appreciate that despite his imposing power, he is eager for us to know him and is willing to bridge the gap.
2: All of these accommodations are just ways of communicating. The chasm, the bridge between us is incomprehensible. Paul says Mm. in the New Testament, he dwells in light that no one can approach. These are just ways of saying that there's an inaccessibility in terms of God's essential nature. But then here's this guy walking around the dusty streets of you know, ancient Jerusalem and ancient Galilee. And they're like, oh yeah, that guy over there, that's God. And Paul's like, in that guy, <laughs> all the fullness of the yeah. Godhead bodily dwells. And and our response to that should simply be to fall down in worship and say, wow. I mean, re- literally just wow.
0: This is where some people might get lost. And honestly, I get lost too when trying to comprehend the magnitude of the Godhead I would get frustrated and confused at the disciples for not trusting in Jesus and being there for him, but the truth is that they were so busy spending time with him that his divinity was often forgotten. Don't we do the exact same thing? Whether a believer, non-believer, or undecided, we can see the character of Christ and think that he's too good to be true. Therefore, we might risk making him, and by extension, God, one-dimensional characters.
1: Going back to the fact that Jesus is the embodied revelation of the character of God, right? John, under inspiration, identifies him as the word that was with God forever in eternity past, who has now come to us. And he is the Logos. And then in, that's the first couple verses of John mm-hmm. chapter one. And then in verse 14, the word, the Logos became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So the, the word logos is essentially the idea that the world in reality as a whole has an operating system. And, and John is saying the one who is behind and through and in all of it. The one who is the logic of reality itself, the rationale of existence, Mm -hmm. what we are and who we are and why we exist. All of it now is present in bodily form, and he's about to interact with us in real time in history. So pay attention because you're about to see glory. Yes. In the form of grace and truth in perfect. Equilibrium. Mm, hallelujah. We're about to we're about to encounter God in the flesh, and we're about to find out what life means.
0: Mm. Amen. Why it has
1: meaning at all, and what the meaning is. And when you look at Jesus, when you look at the logos, when you look at the the logic of reality itself in Christ, the operating system. Well, you discover that it's. It's rather magnificent and mundane simultaneously. Mm. So in chapter one, you're like, you're about to encounter uh, the glory of God.
0: Whenever we question or forget the character of God, look at Christ. His ministry on earth is staggering and a model of perfect love and perfect justice. There are a few people who have an easier time accepting Christ than God. But the truth is, Christ is God. Christ is fully God and fully man. He experienced growing pains. He withstood temptation. He was heartbroken at the mistreatment of others and acted to address it immediately. His respect for the poor, the disabled, the disenfranchised, the broken, the outcasts are all examples of God and his character. Christ is God living out his divine love in human form.
1: It's interaction with a woman at a well. Right. Would you get me a drink of water? <laughs> um, well, this is weird. Because, exactly. um You're a Jewish male and I'm a Samaritan woman. And there is this chasm between us socially, ethnically, religiously, Um, she understood that this Jewish male was crossing that social barrier in to receive something from her hands. She was no doubt on some level baffled by it on another level, flattered by it. Wow. Mm. So you would talk to me, number one, number two, you would drink water that I, you know, drew from the well and from my hands. This is, a snapshot of the glory of God. So as a simple act of generosity, this Mm. is the glory of God. You have Jesus, you know, the gospel of John unfolds and he's, there's all these snapshots, all of these revelations of what it looks like for, for grace and truth to be held in proper tension and balance. He's saying, I know you and I love you. You're perfectly known. The woman at the well again. Mm -hmm. You know, she runs back to her village. She ran back and said, come and meet a man who told me everything I ever did. To which the natural response of any human being would be, I don't want to meet a man who can tell me everything I ever did. Why would I? What what, are you insane? Why would I want to meet somebody who knows everything about me? But somehow... She had encountered self-revelation in his presence. Jesus essentially says, I know you. You, you have had a lot of failed relationships, girl. And somehow he made the impression on her that she would want to invite everybody else to come and meet a man who could tell you everything you ever did. So this is grace and truth. Mm -hmm. This is, this is, I know. And yet. Amen. I love you. There's mercy. There's grace. So this is Jesus. This is God in the flesh.
0: Ty's point can be condensed into a quote by author and theologian Tim Keller. To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and fully loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us from our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. The reality that someone can know everything about us and still love us, feel inclined to love us more, doesn't seem possible, yet this is the reality of who God is over and over in the scriptures. God does not lean away from us when we fail, but leans in. Our sinful nature does not repel God. He doesn't love an idealized version of us that we bring to church, but knows the full extent of our nature and encourages us to grow and transform in light of his love. This has been the first part of our deconstruction of our image of God. We will continue our conversation with David and Ty. Don't worry. Our reconstruction has only just begun. An Adventist
2: Learning Community Podcast.